Well, in my office, I have a, a book on marriage by Paul Tripp. Ivan, I've not read it yet, but we, we plan to. It's entitled, What Did You Expect? It's a great title for a marriage book, right? All those who've been married for a while are like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And he begins a book by telling one story that he tells throughout the book. And he, he tells of a counseling session he had with a, a married couple and the um, they'd been married about 15 years, and all the wife could do was lament at the, her disappointment with the state of marriage. She said, 15 years. 15 years. And this is all I get? And the husband was frustrated as well with her constant complaining and daily criticism, even though he worked really hard to provide everything for her. And uh, when Paul took uh, this, this couple together, he, he boiled down the major problem in their marriage to unrealistic expectations. And then he comments and he says this, I'm persuaded that it is more regular than irregular for couples to get married with unrealistic expectations. Again and again, I've sat with couples who simply do not seem to be taking seriously the important things in the Bible has to say about what every marriage encounter in the here and now is like. Unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. So catch that again. Unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. I mean, you think about marriage. Two sinners coming together. Well, what would you expect but sparks to fly, right? In fact, um, Dave Harvey wrote a book called When Sinners Say I Do. It's what happens when Sinners come together and conflicts come, of course, and deep disappointments come, of course, and troubles come, of course, in marriage. And that's why we need to keep the gospel center and focus in in our marriages. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And and by faith in Christ alone, He's graciously forgiven us all of our transgressions. As a result of our forgiveness with God, then we can extend that to forgive others and especially our marriage partner and trust then that God is going to do His work in their life. And when we don't see and trust the Lord in these things, problems erupt, arguments arise, resentments follow, and and pretty soon, rather than moving together in marriage, you start moving apart in marriage. And much of it boils down to um, having false expectations. But this this whole idea about... Um, solving problems by having right expectations is is all across the board. I mean, you can apply that not only to marriage, but you can apply it to, to business. You purchase a product, you expect it to work, right? Someone's going to come and do some repair for your house. You expect that they do it well and that their repair is is good, right? You sign a contract with some company. You expect them to uphold their end of the deal as you expect to uphold ours, yours. Uh, this recently... Uh, we switched our telephone, our internet service provider, and um, in the transition, there have been some surprises. I was on the phone, I think it was Friday, I was on the phone for probably half an hour. I got transferred one place to another place to another place to another place, talking about just my expectations about the differences between what I expected and what came on the bill in the mail. And so right expectations could resolve those issues, right? And, and all across the board, the Boy Scouts, if you're going to sign up for Boy Scouts, you want to know how much it's going to cost, how much time is it going to take. You sign up for your softball team, you want to know how much it's going to cost, how much time is it going to take. These are expectations. In the Christian faith, it's the same as well. When, when Jesus was preaching to some followers about people, the multitudes, and he said, this is what you need to do to follow me. Okay? So you got these multitudes out here in Luke 14. You got all these people thinking about listening to Jesus and uh, thinking about following him. Here's what Jesus says. He sets expectations for what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then, and then he talks about expectations here. He says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. <laughs> Look, he began, the dump, he began to build a tower. He can't finish it. He didn't, he didn't think about it. He didn't think it through. 
They say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 or else. While still the other's far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple and not give up all his own possessions. And so when Jesus says, you want to be a follower of me, it's all in or it's nothing. And if you just kind of come half-heartedly, find out your expectations are a little bit different than what's reality, and you, you go, wait, you're just like the guy who tried to build the tower without counting his resource. You need to count your life, count your resource, consider whether Jesus all in is whether I'm there or not. Jesus setting expectations about what it means to follow Him. It means we must give up everything, renounce all in our life, give our all to Him. And now I say the same is true for future events. We need to have right expectations about what's going to happen in the future. It's important we think about eschatology as we work and we think about end times. That we, we have expectations about what will take place and what is our experience and our role in that. My message this morning is entitled Expectations of the End. Just what are we expecting of the end? If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 13. Next week, we'll preach a, I'll preach a Christmas message for us. But today, we're continuing, as we've been doing, through the, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, well, I've been trying to go fast through this chapter. And I just can't. just because there's some crucial things that we just need to understand and, and slow down. The, the past few weeks, we've really been looking at this whole... Two weeks ago, we looked at the whole chapter. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8, the beginning of birth pangs. And today, we begin in verse 9. You remember that... That uh, Jesus said as they went out of the temple, verse 1, to his disciples when they said, oh, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said they're all going to be torn down. And then they got up to the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, overlooking the city. And his disciples, four of them particularly, Peter and James and John and Andrew, questioned him. They said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, we know from other Gospels that they even asked about what's going to be the sign of the, the end of the age. Right? We're talking about future things. We're talking about eschatology. We're talking about, about prophecy. And Jesus then, in Mark here, spends 33 verses talking about laying out what it is we need to know about His return and the end of the age. And our focus today is on 9 through 13. And, and, and they really talk a lot about what we ought to expect from that time, they're going to describe the incredible difficulties that the disciples of Christ will face before Jesus comes. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And Jesus is describing these difficult times. Consider what he says, Mark chapter 13, 9 through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now again, I just want to start with this question. It is the question ought to govern all your understanding of Mark 13. These, these words, are they totally in the future? Are they just in the future for the disciples? After all, he's talking to the disciples and he's saying, be on your guard for they will deliver you to the courts. He's just talking to the disciples. Is it all fulfilled? Is there still more to be fulfilled? That's the big question of interpretation in this whole passage. I just want to put that for you. We'll kind of come back to that. But let me just be honest with you. I have a burden today about these words here today. I have a burden for those who particularly take these words and put them all in the future. There are many who say, starting at verse 5, right, these are all right in this seven-year tribulation period sometime in the future is where all these words arise. And, and what happens is people believe, well, it's all for the seven-year tribulation period and, and the rapture is going to take, before, take place before that and I'm going to be up and out of here before it gets really bad. 
And so think about what that does to someone's mindset. It, it says that, oh, life is going to be okay here and I'm going to be out of here before it gets really bad. And I'm telling you what Jesus is telling his disciples. is They didn't have that expectation. They had the expectation that things are going to be really bad. And I, I fear for those people who have false expectations. I fear for those who aren't then prepared for the, the coming when things are, are like this. Because the picture that Jesus paints here, quite frankly, isn't the picture of application that's painted to lots of people. It's a peace and ease, and then there's trouble later. And you just think about this. What were the expectations of the disciples about the future that they hold for them? They think that, well, things would be kind of bad, but we're going to get out before things are really bad. Well, let's look. Here's my first point. What to expect? What, what to expect when the end comes? Look at what Jesus says here. He says, be on your guard, verse 9, for they will deliver you to the courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. I just, I just picked out some things there. These heavy words. The words of, of certainty actually though, right? They, verse 9, they will deliver you to courts. And you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors. Right? Verse 11, when they arrest you and hang you over. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death, a father's child. Verse 13, you will be hated by all because of my name. These are not words of possibility. These are words of certainty that is brought here before his disciples. He said they'd be brought before the, the, the authorities to give an account for their faith and the process physical abuse would come. He, he warned they are flogging. Literally, darrow is the Greek word, just means to be beaten. They'll be beaten with clubs. They'll be beaten with whips. This is what happened to Jesus, right? He was scourged with a whip. He was hit in the head with a staff. He says the same thing that happened to Jesus would happen to them. And it's not merely the local magistrates that would hear their case. It would go to the top. They would stand before governors. They would stand before kings. Maybe it's an appeal or maybe they were such a big problem, these righteous people who proclaim the, the glories of Jesus. And why would they do that? They'd stand before them as a testimony to them, as a testimony of Jesus to them. This is what Peter told his people, he said, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And here it is. These people are coming. These disciples will come before kings and governors and they will be asked, what account do you give? And having sanctified Christ as Lord in their hearts, they will give a defense for their hope with gentleness and with reverence in submission to the the governing authorities, they will. And what Jesus said came to pass. Because of their faith in Jesus, they appeared before the civil authorities. They appeared before the authorities. Because of their faith in Jesus, they were scourged in the synagogues. Acts chapter 4. I mean, all you need to do is read there. Right? Peter and John were out and um, you're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Right? They, they healed this poor lame man. He rose, he walked, people, hey, what's happening? And, and, and they said, it's, it's not our power, it's Jesus. And they proclaimed in him that he raised from the dead. And as a result of that, stirring this crowd, they were arrested, thrown in jail, and then called to give an account before the religious leaders. Now, Luke in Acts chapter 4 is very specific who he stood before. He stood before Ananias and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. Ananias was a high priest whose term was ended, but yet he still remained in incredible power. Caiaphas was once high priest. He resided over Jesus and Jesus' religious trial. John became the high priest after Caiaphas was finished. And also in Alexander, assume he was there as a high priest as well. These men were the most powerful religious leaders in the land. And the apostles stood before them and Peter testified that in the name of Jesus Christ, that this lame man was made well. Jesus said, this was the rejected stone that has become the cornerstone. Don't you remember from Psalm 118? The council just warned Peter and John, okay, we're going to warn you, don't, don't preach anymore in this name and here we'll let you go this time. And of course they knew 
that we must obey God rather than men. And so they went out and they did the same thing. They started preaching again and um, preaching about Jesus. They're imprisoned once again by the high priest and his associates. And this time at the end of the trial, it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. Here's because of their faith. In Jesus, they appeared before authorities and they were scourged in the synagogues. And this, by the way, set the trajectory for the rest of their lives. Every single disciple was eventually killed for their faith in Christ. Save John was exiled to the island of Patmos and Judas who killed himself. But every single one was killed for their preaching and teaching about Jesus. That meant a lot of preaching and teaching, meant a lot of standing before authorities, meant a lot of scourgings in the synagogues, meant a lot of suffering. But they knew, as Jesus said, verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Right? And if the message of Jesus was going to spread, it was going to begin with these guys. And they took the message out and they spread the message far beyond Israel, just that little city. All of them spread out. And, and we have, according to church tradition, the best of what we know, historic tradition about how Peter went to Rome. Perhaps, don't know for sure, but Andrew went to Greece and Russia. That's what tradition says. James was killed in Israel in Acts chapter 12 before he had really time to, to scatter. John was exiled in Patmos. Thomas went to India. We don't know about Matthew, but Philip went to modern-day Turkey. Bartholomew went to Armenia, then to India. James went to Egypt, Thaddeus to Persia. And all of them, as they went, were crucified and killed by people out there, by the governors and by the kings. And God used these people to bring the gospel to many nations. Well, not only was it true, the twelve who spread the gospel as well, Paul Later in the book of Acts, you can read towards the end about him standing trial before the government authorities. He was beaten for his faith in the synagogue five times. He said, I received 39 lashes from the Jews. That is the religious authorities lashing him 35 times, one less than death because of his views, because he's preaching Jesus. He stood before the, the political governors Felix and Festus and Agrippa. Eventually, he went to Rome to stand before Caesar. And Paul did his part to really spread the gospel to like all nations is what he's talking about here. He went to Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. He went to Greece. He went to Crete. He went as far as Italy, right? When he was going to Rome, he was making there. He was hoping to go on towards Spain at some point. And in Romans 16, Paul says that the gospel has been made known to all the nations. In Colossians 1.23, Paul said the gospel is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And there's debate here about whether verse 10 has really been fulfilled yet or not. Now, there, there's great reason to believe the, the, the disciples believed that it went all out. Whether Jesus was talking here about every single nation, all the, the lost tribes or all the, the tribes in Papua New Guinea or in Indonesia. We don't know, but it means that the gospel spread out throughout everything and it it went and advanced far and wide in the generation after Jesus perhaps much more than even we commonly think but as the gospel went out persecution came along with it and here's an idea of how the persecution is going to be in 12 and 13 brother will betray brother to death and father's child and children rise up against parents and have them put to death persecution comes in the form of family and society Family in verse 12, society in verse 13, you'll be hated by all because of my name. Now, this ought not to surprise us. The first two children of this earth, Cain and Abel, they had conflict with each other and one rose up and killed the other. Why? Because Abel offered a righteous sacrifice and Cain didn't. And Cain was jealous for the righteous Abel and so killed his brother. You read Abraham's offspring and you start seeing all the... Um, all the ways in which they were dysfunctional. Ishmael and Isaac, very dysfunctional. Jacob and Esau, very dysfunctional. Contention between... And it's all about religious things. Who's going to be blessed by God? Is it Cain or Abel? Is it Isaac or Ishmael? Is it Jacob or Esau? These are, these are conflicts that happen in families. And they often happen. And we need to acknowledge that that will take place. The Gospel is offensive. 
and it will divide, right? When you come to the knowledge and truth, your hope is totally in Jesus. And then apart from your hope in Jesus, you're lost and sunk in your sins. And you begin to say that, tell that to your family. Sparks fly as well. Right? When you tell your family members that, that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God, and, and that we need to go through Him and God disapproves of all sin. Right? And you start talking that to your, your family and things don't go so well. You start confronting your, your brother or your sister on their sin, or your sister-in-law, or your niece, or your nephew, or your father, or your grandfather, right? And, and sparks fly. Right? When you see, when you see your mother in a, in a, something that's wrong, that, that, you know, maybe she thinks she can get there by her good works, or she loves her yoga, or spiritual meditation, or her, her dad loves his raunchy television shows or movies, and yet still, come to church and appear righteous on everybody. And you start confronting that and saying, you're a hypocrite. Things start flying and persecution can come. Now, I do believe here verse 12 is, is in context of, uh, of religious persecution, right? Where an unbelieving brother betrays a, a believing brother to death because of the faith that, that he hates. And we can look at that and we just can cringe at what a horrible thing that is that family would betray family. And yet this week, right out in Connecticut, the school, it was a son killed mom and all those kids. It was exactly right here. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. That was happening in the time of the disciples. It's happening today. It's happened for a long time. There's strife in families over religious things. I know families who disown their children because they converted to Christianity. I have a Jewish friend who came to Christ years ago when we were living in DeKalb and um, her father basically disowned her. I've heard of families doing funerals for children when they convert to Christianity. They've ostracized, alienated. I know some of us estranged from family members because of faith. It's just the reality of of what the disciples are facing. And it is really the reality of what we face today as well. Families are hostile to Christianity because our society is hostile to the gospel. Verse 13, you will be hated by all because of my name. Followers of Jesus Christ face the hostile world. We don't don't face a world that that loves Jesus and we kind of just meld into this world. So let's rid ourselves of the notion that that being a Christian is a good thing for your reputation in society. Paul, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, considered himself the scum of the earth. Right? Those that are looked down and despised. There are plenty of business people in the world who go to church because they want a good reputation in the family, being moral. Well, that attitude doesn't mix with verse 13. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But people use religion sometimes and think, hey, it's a good thing. But, but true religion that loves Jesus is not going to be loved and embraced in the world totally because the world isn't hostile to God. The world lives in rebellion to God. And they know God, but rather than acknowledging Him and giving thanks, they've embraced their own sins. As a result, the world has rejected God. And, and nowhere is this better exhibited than Jesus. Nobody in the world ever had any reason to hate Jesus. When Peter summarized his life, he said, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. The clear testimony was that Jesus never sinned. He never sinned against anybody. And yet, what happened to Jesus? The world hated Him. He came into His own. His own, those who were His own, did not receive Him. Instead, they rejected Him. Jesus said, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. The men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And Jesus said, you know the world hated me. They hated me without a cause. And the reason why people hated Jesus is because they hate God. And Jesus being every bit God is who they hated. And then Jesus says this statement in John fifteen twenty: If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul said it this way, 2 Timothy three twelve: All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 13. If you stand for Christ, you'll be hated. It's just how it is. Now, 
What is interesting here is all these things took place in the day of the disciples. They were delivered up. Verse 9. The Gospel went out. Verse 10. In great ways. Verse 11. They were arrested and handed over. Verse 12. There were brothers betraying brothers and fathers and child. They were hated because of the name of Jesus. So, let's come back to our big question. Is this, is this just in Disciples' Day? Or is this totally for the future day? Or is it something like we saw last week? Earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars. Just, you know what? It's been all throughout time and maybe will escalate towards the end. What, like, what, what will it be? Is it the future? Now, I think there are many in America who say, yes, this is all future, right? That's, that's, that's just going to happen there because, quite frankly, we don't have much persecution here. There is some, to be sure. But I don't think any of us have appeared before the religious or governmental authorities because of our witness for Jesus. Okay, maybe. I don't, I don't think so. And none of us have been beaten and imprisoned for our faith, I don't think. And we give great praise to God for that, that we have a nation, right, that has been founded upon religious freedom, that we can preach and teach the exact same message the apostles did. Right, and Jesus is the resurrection of the dead. Right, He's the stone which the builders reject has become the chief cornerstone. Believe on Him and have eternal life. We can preach that. When the apostles preached that same thing, they were jailed. It has to do with our, our culture today. Maybe our culture is apathetic today. Maybe it's more difficult to say this Jesus who you crucified because they actually had blood still on their fingers from crucifying Jesus just uh, um, a month and a half beforehand. Maybe they're different, but, but we do live in a country that's been founded upon religious freedom. And for that, we can give thanks. And so in that sense, I think Americans can either just say, oh, these things yeah, may have happened the Disciples' Day, and, and maybe they'll happen in the future, but for us, it's really not, not here. And, and in some regard, that's true. But try asking someone in China whether these things are future, or whether these things are still present, or they will be uh, fulfilled now or when they will. I have a copy of the most recent issue of World Magazine. You guys familiar with World Magazine? Yes? Hand, raise hands. Are you familiar? Okay, those of you who aren't, get familiar with it. It's good. It's a Christian magazine on the level of Time. Um, and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report are, are, are going off the scene. Time is staying around. And um, Time does every year a Man of the Year, which has been renamed Person of the Year, and I think sometimes been um, been a computer even one time. But... Um, what World Magazine has decided to do is do their Daniel of the Year award. And, and really named after Daniel chapter 6, verse 5, it says, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And so what they do is they try to find people who are making a stand for righteousness and yet are, are being, whatever, persecuted and attacked in some kind of way or, 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 or making, a, making a stand. And people trying to subvert that and they're standing uprightly as, as Christian people. And in 2012, they had Daniels of the Year. China's outspoken, imprisoned Christians and their long-suffering, long-distanced families um, what, what picture do we have up there? Yep, just right up there. It's a close-up of what this is. Now, in here, <clears throat> they do have a... I got another picture. Here's a spread, just like this, of uh, three people particularly. And they just highlighted three people in China. They certainly probably could have highlighted more. Now, these these people really are, are all the same. And they have the same circumstances. Um, um, all of these men here are in China. Uh, they all have been imprisoned, really, for their faith and calling for freedom. Uh, so what's happening there. Uh, this is a, a, a wife. This is actually a daughter. And there's a, a wife over there uh, of that man. And they all are, are in China in prison as we speak. I mean, these are all relatively recent, um, recent sort of things. I want to uh, just talk and give the testimony of, of each of these men. And you can ask about these people. Do they believe that these things are really happening or not? When they have expectations of the end, are they expecting difficulties? Are they expecting a flowery bed of ease? Uh, the first man's name, I have no idea how to pronounce this. Gao Tsing Heng. Okay? Um, 
to one of the left, Gao Qinheng. Let's call him Gao. Uh, he was born in 1964. Poor. He joined the People's Liberation Army. Kind of allowed him to see the world a little bit. Uh, he got some education. Became a lawyer. Passed the law exam in 1995. Um, let me just pick up what what world says here. He initially handled medical malpractice suits and economic law. As Gao. He was a Communist Party member and the Chinese government lauded his work, but Gao's interest soon broadened. The attorney began taking human rights cases and defending property owners harassed by government officials. And a local pastor offered spiritual support to some of Gao's oppressed clients. And he offered the same gospel message to Gao and eventually the young attorney embraced Christianity. (laughs) That was his mistake, quote unquote. Gao began defending pastors against the government harassment, including a minister sentenced to three years in prison for printing and distributing Bibles. He joined a legal defense team for a house church network in Beijing. And he also advocated religious freedom for others, including the Falun Gong, an outlawed and heavily persecuted sect in China whose members have faced torture and imprisonment. As a Christian attorney, he represented the weak, his wife says. He represented freedom. And Gao also represented a threat to the Chinese government. Officials directed him to stop talking, taking Falun Gong cases. And security agents began following him and his family. Instead of retreating, Gao wrote an open letter to China's prime minister and called for the greater religious freedom. And Chinese officials suspended his law license in 2005. Later that year, Gao formally broke with the Communist Party. In a letter dated December 13, 2005, you turned 10 years old on that day, right, SR? December 13, 2005. <laughs> Perfect. He said the party tries to torture people out of their conscience, and he declared, Today I, Gao Xinxing, a, member, a party member, formally withdraw from this inhumane, unjust, and evil party. He concluded, This is the proudest day of my life. Less than a year later, Gao would disappear. That's how it works in China. You just. You're gone. Well, he went to into prison, out of prison. They found him. They kind of came out back and forth. And, and one time, it says, when he emerged 50 days later from a prison term, he wrote a haranguing account, a harrowing account of interrogation and mental torture by secret police and said agents severely beat his naked body with electrified batons. That's what he gets for trying to defend the poor and the helpless and those who are being oppressed. You'll stand before governors and kings. You'll be beaten, scourged in the synagogues. That's what took place. That's what's taking place today, like in the past, whatever, six years, five years. Okay, the next guy in the middle. Uh, this guy's name is Liu Xiangbing. He began his political activism in 1989 during the Tiananmen Square episode. I'll just read his stories best. By 1998, he had co-founded a local branch of China Democracy Party and established a branch of the China Human Rights Watch. He advocated for greater liberties, including religious freedom. A year later, Chinese authorities convicted Liu of subversion of state power and was sentenced the activist to 13 years in prison. Officials released Liu after nine years And the activist immediately returned to his advocacy. Liu was one of the first signers of Charter 08, a document by Chinese activists calling for sweeping democratic reforms. The charter included calls for freedom of religious practice and abolishing laws that require churches to register with the government. Liu continued to write articles for the international media criticizing the Chinese government and human rights abuses in May 2010. That's just like two years ago. He spoke with Radio Free Asia about a government raid on a house church in the Sichuan province. Authorities had detained eight church members, including a three-year-old. And a month later, he was detained. Again, after spending nine years in prison fighting for religious freedom. He's free. He just speaks the same things. They detain him again. And, and here's, here, here's the interesting thing, is that the harassment culminated when his daughter... Who's right there was 13 years old. Police summoned her from her school classroom and interrogated her about her father. What did he do in his free time? What did he write on the computer? What did they talk about? 
So kind of interrogating, trying, trying to figure out everything about this man. And, and uh, then she was sent back to school. And by the time she arrived at home, her dad was gone. <laughs> like verse 12, father will rise up against son and son against father, mother against... That happened right here. And, and, and the interesting thing here is that, that dad hardly knew the daughter because he'd been in jail for nine years until she was 13 or 12 or whatever, somewhere along there. They only spent 20 months together. And so he, she didn't even really have great, great feelings with them. And she wasn't a Christian. All these, I don't think I've said this, all of these women have escaped the United States. They're here in the United States. That's how they can tell their stories, hoping that the word will get back to China, that their imprisoned husbands or fathers will be released. But she said one of the best things about coming to America is she became a Christian. And now she understands. But she didn't before because she wasn't a Christian and she willingly betrayed her dad. Well, the last guy, his name is Guo Quan. He was a professor at Nanjiang Normal University. And um, as a professor, he had a platform. And, and he, um, uh, his advocacy began in 2007 when he began opening, writing open letters to people. He was a Christian with a, a professorship. I don't know what he was teaching, but he would speak in his classrooms about Christian living and wrote articles about Christian thinking. And um, here's what happened to him. Authorities raided their homes several times in the middle of the night. They smashed locks on the doors. They confiscated computers. They installed surveillance cameras at the apartment complex and monitored the family's phone, Internet use and mail. Lee, the wife, says that Guo's Christian conscience compelled him to continue. He's a Christian and a professor. He thinks he has some responsibility for the society, so he will never stop writing. He never stopped writing. And on November 13, 2008, authorities stopped Gu by arresting him for subversion of state power. Nine months later, um, his wife, Lee, was stunned when she learned that her husband's sentence was 10 years in prison. And uh, there he sits. Because he's a professor and speaks about Christian things, because he writes about Christian things. He's a threat to the government. Now, I ask you, when the Chinese Christians think about the future, what do they think about? I would hold that their expectations of the end is a little bit different than our expectations of the end. We might think everything would be Fine and dandy, rosy, but they know clear well that this could be their plight. Now, not all of the believers in China are persecuted this way. All right, there are 70 million believers in China, and uh, only a few of them are really persecuted hard. But who do they persecute? Persecute the pastors, the, the teachers, the leaders, anybody who begins to make a thing or, or, or to lead or something. They just want to cut down the leaders, what they always did. It's what they did to the apostles, what they did to Jesus, right? Kill the... Kill the main guy and you'll squash everything. They fail to understand this. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church is growing very, very well. In, in part because when these men stand, right? And I love the story of the man on the left. I think he had a chance to come to the United States. But he said, no, I need to stay here and continue to fight. So basically he's becoming a martyr. And I, I trust that from his seed, as he dies and as he whatever, dies to himself and suffers these things, that he's going to have more of an impact there than he probably had in America. Here in America, we can write letters to the newspaper. We can contact our public officials, calling them, emailing. We can protest in front of Capitol Hill. And as long as we're peaceful and respectful, all likelihood we won't be arrested or thrown into prison. But not, not, like, not like these men. Now, Towards the end of time when Jesus returns, I do believe there'll be some escalation of this sort of thing that's happening in China. May well happen. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if things flip. hundred years from now, China becomes a superpower. They own America, right? They own our debt, right? The economy is flourishing. They're going, well, they're a strong Christian nation. And America is steeped in secularism just like Europe has been. That would, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can see that happen, all right? And I can see things take place with us. 
But things are escalating today. I mean, all statistics say that in the 20th century, there have been more martyrs killed for the cause of Christ in this past hundred years than in all the years when the church began combined. This is very much a reality in foreign lands. I think I'd probably be preaching a different message if I was in China at some house church. I'd be preparing for you guys. Hey, let's, let's, let's be ready, right? We're going to suffer. Let's, let's just keep preaching. Let's just keep going on. So what to expect? We expect persecutions. We expect the spread of the gospel. Here's my, my last point, and I'll be quick on this. How to respond. How to respond. I just have three points of application. So we wrap things up. All I'm going to do is take the commands out of here. And as I said in my message two weeks ago, if we get the application right, we get the passage right. Regardless of what, what's going to take place, regardless of whether we get the prophecy right, if we get the application right, we get it right. Here it is. First of all, be on your guard. So Jesus says right there in verse 9, be on your guard. In other words, be prepared for it. Let, let us not think that the tribulation just is way out there someplace for somebody else. No, let's think that we have the reality of these things may come to pass for us as well. The disciples faced these things. The early church faced these things. Do you realize that from the time of the disciples until 311 A.D., They were continually persecuted like this. I mean, disciples were burned at the stake. They were fed to the lions. They were laughing stock of society. People viewed Christians as fools who believed in fairy tales. And it was not until the Edict of Toleration was signed in 311. So, right, I mean, the church is starting, whatever, 33 AD, something like that, till 311. We're talking almost 300 years of constant persecution. Finally, they get a, an edict that's written by the top that says, okay, you know what? Let's tolerate Christians now. That is, don't throw them to the lions anymore. Don't burn them at the stake anymore. And yet, how long was that going to take to actually come to pass? I've been reading recently a, a book uh, called The Emancipation of Robert Sadler. He was a slave in the South and uh, he was born, I think, in 1912. And I'm telling you, a legitimate, bona fide slave in the South. Don't think that the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln signed, don't think that the Civil War solved the slavery problem. This man was a slave in his early years. I'm not going to the point where he's released yet. I'm just hearing of his childhood growing up being a slave and taking care of all his white masters. and working. His sister died working in the fields. His mom died because of working in the fields and exposure and so the Edict of Toleration at least said, okay, don't stop persecuting them. And how, how much down that filter through? How long did that take? I don't think that Jesus said here that these words are only for some far off 2,000 year away culture. I think they've always been. I think they will always continue to be. Yes, we have a respite of freedom right now, but don't be surprised when we lose our freedom. Don't be surprised. President Obama's HHS mandate is a case in point. Requires companies to provide abortifactants for their employees. A pill or device of some type that attempt to keep a fertilized egg. Fertilized egg, read that human being from implanting. The Roman Catholics uh, heroically, very well, have staunchly opposed this mandate. But so is Mark Taylor. Mark Taylor, um, he's the president of Tyndale House Publishers in Wheaton, I think. Somewhere around that area. He put it well. He said this. I've always thought in a theoretical way that I might someday face a situation where the government was asking or telling me to do something that was counter to God's law, so I understood it. If such a situation arose, I, I hoped I would have the backbone to stand tall and disobey the government mandate. Well, Taylor says, that day seems to have come. As he's now fighting this litigation, standing tall, and fighting against this... Uh, point of legislation is company, a clear a Christian literature based company. They say, oh, you're just a bit, you're just a publishing house. You're in a, and he said, no. And he's trying to prove that, no, he's got religious grounds for that. But you never know what's going to take place. And, and, and that is just maybe the, the tip of a potential iceberg. Peter said this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in that name. So be ready. Be on your guard. Be ready to suffer as a Christian should. Second. Second piece of application. Let's also trust the Lord. I get this from verse 11. Now the word is not there, but the idea is there. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Jesus here gives counsel for the day when you stand before government authorities. When you're arrested because you name the name of Christ and they're calling you in to give you an account. And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry because in that moment, this is great, you're going to have a supernatural experience. The Holy Spirit will be present. He'll give you what to say. He'll help you say it. In fact, so much so that Jesus even says, it's the Holy Spirit who will speak. It's almost as if you're not speaking. The Holy Spirit is speaking for you in that time. So imagine this scenario, right? You've lived according to your Christian convictions. There's some law, some legislation, whatever. Some police um, get you, some threat on you. They arrest you. You're thrown into prison. You spend the night. You know, at nine o'clock the next morning, you're going to stand before the judge. Now, if you're anything like me, you're going to think through, okay, I got a tough meeting tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. And what am I going to say? What if this person says this? How am I going to respond? And I'm going to be up all night thinking about it. But what does Jesus say? He's go to bed and sleep like a baby and don't worry at all about what you're going to say. Because when you stand up there, you're going to be given supernatural words. Trust the Lord. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He will give you the strength. That's the thrust, I think, of verse 11. Finally, not only should we be on our guard, not only should we trust the Lord, we should also endure until the end. This really isn't a command, but I feel it's a good place to finish. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The one who endures until the end, he will be saved. Now, it's talking about about the end of time. He's talking about the end of your life. The one who endures until the end of life will be saved. Some difficulty comes in your life. You're making a stand for Christ. And you can either give up or you can endure. And know that Jesus here causes us to look towards the future to know that endurance will bring good results. We'll be rewarded by salvation if we endure. Because the reality is that not all endure. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed? The sower takes the, the seed, which represents the Word, and he throws it in the different kinds of soil. It falls on the path and the birds come down they eat it up. It falls on the rocky soil and, and that soil didn't have any depth so it kind of sprouts up but then it withers away in the sun because it didn't have any root of soil. And then he throws some others on the thorns and the thorns come up and they choke it. Or he throws some upon the good soil and that produces 30, 60, 100 fold right, going up. And Jesus then, when He interpreted it, do you remember he said about the path? He says, you throw along there. It's like the devil comes. He takes the word away. The word doesn't even go. But of those upon the rocky soil, listen to what Jesus says. Mark 4, 16 and 17. We looked at these a couple months ago. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And when affliction A persecution arises because of the word. Immediately they fall away. I think these are people who have wrong expectations about what it means to follow Jesus. Luke 14 didn't sink into them. They didn't have any depth. And and when affliction and persecution come, which, by the way, is exact context here of Luke 13, of Mark 13, rather. Is it many people hear it, hear the word with joy? Affliction and persecution are coming. And what does affliction and persecution do? It refines. It takes off the dross and it brings the pure to light. And the issue with those upon the rocky soil is that the, the persecution affliction comes. And though they sprout up and though they receive things with joy, they eventually wither away because they, as it says here, they fall away. They never got to bearing fruit in their lives. So as you think about end times, you think about the difficulties that may come into your, the hand from our government. Or maybe some of you children, I pray for this, maybe you go into a land like this. You go to the, the different places where 
um, it's illegal to be Christians or highly Muslim world. In a couple of weeks from now, Rob Provost is going to come and, and speak and talk. Um, and uh, he's a missionary to Albania. And he's going to talk about just trying to raise up a generation of people to bring them to the Muslim world. Not necessarily missionaries, just even going and working over in a Muslim world. Be covert. Where to believe in Christ is an um, act of blasphemy. Maybe some of you kids will do that, right? But you think about expectation. Think about expectation of your life. And, and don't think you're just going to miss it all. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus said, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Tribulation, ten days. Testing, ten days. That means torture. Testing for ten days. But you, you endure until the end and I'll give you the crown of life. I just encourage all of you. It will be worth it. To continue endure and trust in Jesus. Jesus. Jesus promised difficulties will come. That's the expectation we ought to have. And may the Lord grant strength for all of us to endure until the end. So let's be on guard. Let's trust the Lord. Let's endure until the end. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult words. But in, last, in the last days, difficult times will come. As men are lovers of self and boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and loving. And Father, I would pray that we would be found as, as true and, and righteous and trusting in You with all of our heart for all of our lives. Oh God, we don't have the strength in and of ourselves to, um, to endure. We need You. But I, I pray, Lord, that You would so stir in our hearts, so strengthen us in our moments of weakness that we will trust in You and cry out to You, as Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because it's you who dwell in us at those moments. And so I pray you'd help us. God, may we glory in the cross of Christ. May Jesus Christ, him crucified, be our, the consuming thought of our hearts. May it be the consuming message of our lips. And may we be willing and ready and prepared for whatever would come our way. God, because it may come and it may not. And, and I pray it wouldn't come, but I pray we'd be ready for that. So I pray you'd help us in those things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.